Welcome to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm joined by a group of colleagues here to talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the Middle East. We have Dina Esfandiari on the line from Switzerland. Yep. And Aaron Lund on the line from Sweden. Yes. And Michael Wahid Hanna on the line from Greater New York. Thanks all of you uh, for joining us for today's discussion, which uh, links to a online written roundtable that's also been published today on the uh, Century Foundation's website. Uh, so thanks everyone for joining us. Um, Michael, you had some really interesting uh, thoughts about what we know and don't know about how this pandemic has played out in the region. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a strange time even still because it is slow moving in a sense um, and hasn't conformed to our expectations. And so um, there was a moment in February when we were considering worst case scenarios. Uh, things were starting to become um, quite dire in Iran. Uh, and it was a time when we knew very little uh, about the disease um, and transmission of the virus. Uh, and so uh, it was easy to think um, about fairly apocalyptic scenarios. Now, um, that hasn't come to pass, but uh, when we first started talking about doing this roundtable, the situation uh, in the region looked a little better. Uh, I think what we see now is transmission increasing in places like Yemen. I mean, Yemen uh, is uh, a place ill-equipped to deal with this. The public health sector is obviously um, dire uh, gravely impacted by the war. Um, and uh, we see the situation in Egypt deteriorating. We also see um, an, an uptick uh, in cases in Iran after um, uh, transmission seemed to be decreasing. And so, as with everywhere else in the world, including the United States, um, it's difficult to know uh, where this is heading uh, at a kind of uh, uh, level of transmission and disease. Um, I think we'll get into some of the more concrete effects, like uh, the economic effects that are impacting the region as they're impacting the rest of the world. But it's extremely difficult to, to think beyond the kind of near term because the variables are many um, and even still our understanding of the disease uh, and the pandemic remains um, pretty rudimentary. Um, Dina, do you have any thoughts about, you know, looking at the, you know, the initial impression of Iran was quite worrisome. Uh, there was sort of lurid coverage at times in the West, kind of almost gloating at the situation. Um, it seemed to have stabilized, uh, uh, you know, after a kind of lethargic response. Um, but, but things do seem to be deteriorating again. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh as you say, Iran was hit hard pretty early on, um, and it was at a time where, as you mentioned, we didn't know too much about the disease. Um, and uh, and on top of that, the Iranian government didn't quite react fast enough to it. They, um, they deliberately held back on announcing the presence of the disease uh, because for a number of reasons, one of which was that they didn't want to scare people away from coming to the, to going to, to the to vote at the parliamentary elections that happened um, in February. So it just meant that the disease pr 
progressed much faster in Iran and um, and they hit huge numbers pretty early on. And then and it also took a while for the government to react and impose a lockdown to get things under control. Once they did, um, as you mentioned, things stabilized somewhat. Uh, but the problem is that they couldn't sustain the lockdown for too long. And now they've slowly started opening up. And as they've opened up, these numbers, um, the numbers of infected have peaked again. Now, the alternative explanation that's being offered by the government is that, of course, they have more testing kits available right now. Um, and so it's a lot easier for them to know exactly uh, how many people have been affected. Uh, and that may be true, but uh, but it is clear that the numbers are increasing again. What about the impact on the elite? Because one of the early storylines out of Iran was that senior government officials, including advisors to the, the supreme leader, uh, fell ill, and I think a deputy health minister died. And there was this briefly this idea that the the, the virus was going to ravage the upper echelons of, of of the sort of ruling structure. Did that did that not come to pass? It definitely affected the elite. There's no doubt about it. And again, because it happened early on at a time where it hadn't really reached um, the West. Uh, quite yet, or at least not as visibly. Um, again, it was something that the rest of the world was looking at. And and there was a little bit of gloating in the West about the fact that the Iranian elite was being so affected by by this disease. Um, and then, of course, we saw that the same thing happened in, in the rest of the world anyway. Um, the one thing that the one impact that did have that was quite interesting was that it enabled the elite in Iran to turn around to the Iranian people and say, look, um, there are certain things that make it that we are just the same as you. Uh, and this this came at a particularly important time. This comes at a time where a lot of the Iranian public are looking up towards the government and thinking, you know, they're protected, they're a richer elite, they're getting on fine despite the sanctions and despite the um, economic struggles of the rest of the Iranian people. And the fact that um, the COVID-19 disease hit them so hard, they... The, the, the government kind of turned that into a win by really turning around and telling the Iranian public, look, we're we're just the same as you and we're going to fight this in the same way that you guys are fighting it. Uh, and we're going to do this all together. Um, and the idea was really to rally the Iranian public behind them in this. There's an interesting parallel with Egypt here because uh, there was an assumption early on that, that Egypt was uh, hiding cases. Uh, in that uh, there were uh, the, these positive uh, um, test results for tourists returning from Egypt. Um, and there was a sense that there was a, a massive outbreak happening and that Egypt was responding in its you know, classic uh, authoritarian style and, and obfuscating. Um, and it seems like that wasn't the, the real uh, story at the time, but the attitude of the Sisi regime changed pretty mar markedly in March, when uh, two senior generals died uh, and um, the sort of upper echelons of the security state were exposed uh, to the virus. Um, and um, there are some credible suggestions that, uh, that uh, quite a few more uh, of the senior levels of the Egyptian uh, security sector uh, fell ill. Um, and it's at that point when the regime starts to take this seriously I think what's what's notable is um, that even when uh, when Egypt takes it seriously, uh, it's not a place that went under full lockdown. It's not really clear that they have a, the wherewithal uh, to impose that kind of societal closure. Uh, and 
Um, it's not clear that they took advantage of that moment of um, social distancing to prepare themselves for what seems to be coming now. Uh, it's not as if capacity has been uh, improved in, in the meantime. And I think that's a story that's going to uh, replicate itself uh, across the region um, in that capacity is limited. Uh, public health sectors have been neglected. Uh, and while worst case hasn't come to pass yet, um, it's not clear uh, that, that governments have prepared properly uh, in this um, seeming respite uh, in the interim. Aaron, do you have do you have a sense of um, um, of how these dynamics have have played out um, in Syria? I mean, that when we thought about vulnerable populations and when we think about worst case scenarios, uh, it, it you know uh, IDP camps, uh, refugee camps, uh, you know a, a place like uh, Syria and, and other locales that have been uh, ravaged by. Um, conflict for years um it hasn't it hasn't happened in that way um do you have a sense of of where where things stand well i mean that's the thing i i, I syria seems like it would be at, at, at risk of a really bad uh, epidemic outbreak because you have as you said you have you know the countries divided into different areas that don't really coordinate with each other and you have a lot of people who are vulnerable packed into refugee camps and IDP camps, and you have uh, the health system is broken in, in places like Idlib, for example. The hospitals have been bombed. Um, uh, whatever exists in, in form of you know NGOs and and uh, UN aid uh, in the health sector has been been uh, you know diminished by the pandemic because aid workers have been pulled out and the border has been shut. Funding is 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 not available and things like that, and you've had to uh, move funding to 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 the COVID nineteen response, um, and also in the even in the in the government run areas where you do still have sort of a, a, a rudimentary state healthcare system. Uh, even there, you know the the number of doctors who've left the country, uh, just the brain brain drain and the damage and the and the the economic crisis and the the hollowed out salaries and all of this. Uh, but but so far we haven't really seen um, major numbers in Syria. In fact, I mean the the numbers put out by the Syrian Health Ministry are ridiculously low. They talk about 123 cases in total since this began, and, and I don't think anyone trusts those numbers. But uh, there doesn't seem to be evidence that there is a like a hidden outbreak somewhere in Syria, neither in the government-run areas or in Idlib or in the northeast where the where you have the the, the U.S.-backed SDF, uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, um, and why that is, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe in this case, Syria's isolation actually works to its advantage because most of the cases that the health ministry has reported is is people coming from, for example, Iran uh, by air, and they've been uh, tested when they arrived at the airport, and they've been found to have have the virus, and they've been quarantined. Um, so, so maybe the 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 isolation of Syria, uh, the sanctions and the the war and, and all this stuff has actually had a, a positive effect in, in in this case. But then again, it could be bubbling under the you know underneath the surface, and and, and we could have a breakdown, uh, an outbreak later in in in, uh, in the year or or even uh, in coming years, I guess. 
Aaron, can I ask you also about the, these reports that, that I've been seeing in recent days about uh, people starving? One, how, how, how serious is, is this element of the crisis? And, and second, is that connected to COVID or is that just connected to the ongoing economic Great Depression uh, that has been going on since last fall? Yeah, so I think I mean even if the the, the virus outbreak hasn't been severe yet, uh, thankfully I think the the economic impact of this has been really hard on Syria, and and that uh, is not just because of the virus, because Syria was in a lot of economic trouble even before this began, and that has to do, of course, with the war, but also with uh, you know the cumulative effects of, of crisis upon crisis upon crisis, and you had years of of sanctions and all of these things at once, and then uh, last autumn when when Lebanon. Uh, the the banking crisis in Lebanon began and the political crisis in Lebanon, which is now culminating sort of um, that has spread into Syria and hit the Syrian economy big time. So you have uh, the the Syrian currency is is losing value very, very fast. It was already hollowed out to a great extent before this, but now it's just just sinking like a stone and people's salaries, they don't, you know, they they don't buy uh, food to put on the table at, at this point. So, and when when you had uh, when COVID nineteen um, when that problem emerged, the regime of Bashar al Assad reacted. Um, you know they wanted a lockdown. They went in for like an authoritarian response, true to true to form, uh, and and tried to shut down the country to the extent possible. It wasn't a full lockdown, but they you know they they uh, there was nightly curfews and things like of this sort. That was late March, and then early May, Assad comes out and says that, well, we, you know, uh, this is, is the economy is just too bad. We can't do this. You know, fortunately, the, the the virus hasn't hit us too bad, but maybe it will. But at this point, it's a choice between the virus and and uh, and economic collapse, basically. And it's rare for the Syrian president or any Syrian official to to be that frank about how bad the problems are. Um, so uh, and he he phrases it as you know there there are no preventive measures against hunger except work we have to get people back to work we have to get the economy going again, and um, and I think that's 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 where they are right now because the economy is really bad and it's going to get worse as well because the Lebanese crisis is not uh, doesn't seem to be resolving itself in a in a positive way at least and also in just in in two weeks approximately you have the US uh, Caesar sanctions another sanctions package that comes on top of all the others um, with uh, with even more stringent sanctions on the Syrian economy that will uh, hit the economy even harder so the 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 economic effect of the COVID nineteen crisis has been really really bad on Syria and I think that's uh, something that will have political repercussions as well. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. So Tanasi, I mean, the place that was in economic freefall uh, before uh, the pandemic was Lebanon. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it seems to have weathered the the pandemic okay. Um 
But now uh, this kind of death spiral um, in economic terms is ongoing. Uh, and it came on top of a kind of uh, uh, a protest, uh, an unexpected uh, protest movement. Um, do you have a sense of you know, how those, all of these uh, dynamics uh, that are interlinked are playing out at the moment? So these are, these are huge radical system shocks. Um, and, and they're testing, they're testing the proposition that a, uh, you know, a ruling order, uh, at some point becomes non-viable, uh, if it can't, uh, oversee like the minimal functioning of a, of an economy or, or, or a government. So, um, and, 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 and in a minute, I'll parallel this to what's happening in Iraq, which is, I think, very similar. So in Lebanon, uh, we had these, these overlying, overlapping crises that you mentioned and, any reasonable hypothesis, uh, any, I mean, any regional re- reasonable analysis would suggest that this this just isn't viable, right? You have a, a corrupt predatory ruling order. Uh, it, it sort of has designed the government as a way of keeping itself in power. It does not provide services. It doesn't provide for well-being. And the Ponzi scheme of the economy, which is sort of limped along since the end of the civil war in 1991 has finally collapsed. Uh, and it's collapsing in a, in a spectacular way that really exacerbates, um, the inequalities in the society. And of course has been hastened by, has been accelerated by, by the pandemic. The result of this is that the ultra rich are doing sometimes even better as a result of the speculation that has, that has, uh, resulted during the collapse of the economy and regular people cannot afford food. Um, so like in Syria, so it's a little less uh, dramatic in, in Lebanon than Syria, but it is dramatic. People uh, for a long time now have not been able to buy meat. Now they can't buy fresh ingredients. They can't buy things they need to cook meals. Uh, nobody, uh, almost nobody's working. Uh, there's no economic activity. The, the, the country is not generating any wealth. It's not about a shrinking economy. It's about an economy that is, is simply not performing. Um, this has has wider impact in the region, especially for Syria, which relied on the Lebanese financial system uh, to have access to banks and, and finance. Uh, but uh, on a very practical level, uh, it means that that the the function of society is broken um, and there is an ongoing protest movement against the ruling order. Uh, and I'm I'm fascinated. I mean, of course, you know, my preference would be to see this terrible, rotten uh, ruling system replaced. Uh, but just sort of analytically, I, I, I still don't see a path forward for that to happen. And it's it's kind of incredible as a sort of living experiment to see this kind of stress, uh, an entire population and economy subjected to this kind of stress and to see a, a, a ruling order that's so rapacious uh, somehow uh, survive fairly intact uh, uh, through all this. And, you know, I'm, uh, if at the end of this uh, period, like a, if a year from now, the uh, the Lebanese ruling order has survived, I think there'll be a real, there'll be a really fascinating uh, explanation to have of how, how in the hell uh, a, a government um, that does not deliver any of the things that we think at a minimum, even authoritarian governments have to deliver to their, to their populations uh, can survive. Well, and, and you brought up Iraq and I mean, we, then I could talk about Egypt as well. I mean, um, you know, no, no country is going through this period alone. Uh, 
Um, and uh, maybe just you know, uh, touch briefly on the situation in Iraq, which is also economically uh, quite quite dire, particularly with the collapse of, of uh, oil prices. Um, you know, it, it's possible that as much as we assume that far-reaching change has to be the end result, um, that even these kinds of systemic shocks may not be enough to overturn these uh, sclerotic regimes. I mean, Iraq was was uh, rocked by a, pro a protest movement that made a real fundamental challenge to a, a terrible uh, sectarian party-based uh, power system, uh, and that and and the government was cracking down with incredible violence against this movement. Um, and uh, there was a political crisis. Uh, there was a the, the prime minister resigned. Uh, the all the parties could not agree on a successor prime minister, and this brought in every you know to geopolitics. The U.S. and Iran have to sort of come to agreement over uh, a new prime minister and a cabinet. The different militias have to agree. So this went on for for like nearly a year, uh, this crisis. And, uh, and Iraq was one of the early nations hit by COVID. Uh, uh, I think the theory is that it came from, uh, Iran through, through religious pilgrim traffic, but at any rate, uh, you know, we've got a society that has a really terrible public health system, um, lots of, uh, population density. So the, the virus, uh, came early, um, and then oil prices collapsed, um, because of this price war initiated by Saudi Arabia. And that, took away the last buffer at that point. So at a point where the country was in free fall, the, the, all the parties actually came together and managed to agree on a new prime minister, Mustafa Al-Kadhimi, um, who has taken, taken office, not a transformative figure, not a reformer. Uh, he is a, you know, an incremental, uh, you know, he's a, uh, he seems like a, a decent choice in terms of, you know, competence and, and, uh, uh, judgment, uh, but he is an establishment figure, has buy-in from Iran, from the United States, from the militias, from uh, most of the important constituencies, not from the reformers, not from the protesters. Uh, and it seems like the response to this freefall is business as usual, um, which I find fascinating. And I, and I think one of the uh, one of the things that we also uh, can can talk about is um, regional dynamics involving uh, uh, militias, conflict, um, uh, and and you know, sort of regional exchange of, of training and violence has continued completely unabated through the pandemic. There there has not been a sort of uh, going back to barracks of important uh, militia groups. There there you know, or of ISIS, but by the way, which has enjoyed a resurgence during this period. So that's, that's another, uh, another interesting test was whether this pandemic and the, the sort of cessation of economic activity would reduce conflict. Um, and to date, I, I don't see that happening at all. Yeah. And you know, it's an, it's a, it's, it's a tough problem because, uh, you know, at some level, I think, uh, the disease is going to have its say um, uh, at some point. I mean, I, you know, we all hope it doesn't reach that point. Um, you know, but you're right that conflict and regional patterns um, continue seemingly minimally affected by this pandemic. Um, I do think, however, that there, there comes a point if transmission uh, reaches certain levels uh, where, you know, the status quo can't continue. Um, we haven't reached that. I hope we don't get there. 
but as you say, it is it is fascinating um, how much the status quo um, has persevered at a kind of at the level of domestic governance and at the, at the level of, of, of regional politics. Um, Dina, do you, do you have a sense? I mean, um, it doesn't seem as if Iran has shifted either domestically or regionally in any appreciable way in response to um, in response to COVID. No, it really hasn't. Um, but that's pretty consistent with the way that Iran has acted over the course of the last few decades anyway. Um, whether it's economic uh, fragility or, you know, close to collapse um, or anything like that, Iran doesn't, you know, continues as though it's business as usual, um, particularly in the region. I mean, one of the arguments that everybody had in favor of sanctions was that if we continue imposing them, Iran might withdraw from the region because it won't have the money to continue doing what it's been doing um, for so long. And actually, we've seen that that hasn't really been the case. Now, there has been some small tactical shifts um, over the course of the last maybe couple of months or so. Um, you know, some people have argued that actually in Iraq, they haven't been as aggressive as we saw them over the course of the past year since the um, the coronavirus broke out in Iran, um, that there hasn't been uh, any attacks against tankers anymore. Um, but again, I think these are, uh, I, I think it would be reading too much into them to, to think that this is a more permanent change. It seems to be a little bit of a tactical change. Um, and it's also for a number of reasons. It's partly in response to what it's dealing with internally because its attention is turned towards um, the, you know, dealing with coronavirus, but also because uh, it hasn't faced as much aggression from the U.S. in the last two months as it had in the previous period or in the last year. Um, and a lot of Iran's reactions over the course of the last year has been in direct response to a, a measure that the U.S. has taken towards it. Um, and then, of course, you have examples of Iran not changing much of its activities at, at all. For example, um, the harassment that we saw of U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf, or at least what the U.S. called harassment of its ships, where um, you know the Iranian Navy came too close to the to American ships in the Persian Gulf, and so you have a little bit of both. Um, ultimately, I don't think that the virus will have that much of an impact on what Iran does in the region because it's a it's a, a essentially a different bunch of people thinking about it. Um, and even if there is a, a, a tactical or a temporary break, um, once things return to normal, then Iran's just going to go back to doing what it does best in the region, which is being a nefarious actor. Dina, I would have expected a sort of, you know, even if it was temporary, a surge of COVID collaboration or COVID diplomacy, especially because historically Iran has had a, a, a sort of excellent healthcare and research sector and has been a, you know, has, has, has been both, you know, substantially and also for, for rhetorical purposes, has positioned itself as a sort of uh, leader of, you know, good practice and sound, you know, medical treatment. And they've tried to, I think, you know, support even small scale initiatives that advertise themselves this way. So I would have, I would have expected to see, again, even if they were symbolic, uh, uh, Iranian led public health measures in collaboration, especially with Lebanon and Iraq, with which it already has, and Syria, with which it already has uh, such tight relations. And uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that that just hasn't happened. Is that is that right? And if so, why, why not? So I think the reason for that is that um, initially, uh, you know, 
you can't you can't lie about it. I think the Iranian government panicked. They weren't expecting this. It happened at a time where they were very much focusing on other things. Keep in mind that this happened started happening at the end of January, early February. Um, you know, Qasem Soleimani had just been assassinated by the U.S. The Iran had shot down this. The Iranians had shot down this Ukrainian plane. They were dealing with the fallout from that. They were dealing with the the spike in tension with the U.S. And so they just weren't expecting to deal with such a huge. Um, public health problem. Uh, and this at a time where, of course, Iran, for the better part of most of its existence as an Islamic republic, has been facing stringent sanctions, um, some of which have ended up targeting its public health sector, even though uh, humanitarian and medical um, goods are supposed to be exempt from these sanctions. So they were afraid. They were afraid that they wouldn't be able to handle it. And at the beginning, it was tough. It, it wasn't clear that Iran was going to be able to handle it. They obviously, like we said, got hit hard quite early. Um, and so they were very much focused on ensuring that they were they were able to beef up their public health so that they could deal with it um, and, and better manage the crisis as it went on. So I think that's one reason. Another reason is that the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, really wanted to be the predominant actor in dealing with the coronavirus. And so they tried to position themselves as once again the saviors of the Iranian nation by um, very publicly being the ones who came out into the streets to call on people to, to practice social distancing, to go home at a time where Iranians were refusing to... to um, listen to the lockdown rules. Um, they were the ones who came out and very publicly disinfected the streets. Uh, and, and so for them, for the IRGC, it was really important for them to be seen as the saviors of the Iranian nation. And that was, again, very much focused internally and not so much something that was important for them to do outside of their borders. Now, having said that, though there wasn't um, regional cooperation on dealing with the coronavirus with countries like Iraq and Lebanon, um, at least not as far as I know either, there were instances of cooperation, interestingly enough, with Iran's Gulf Arab neighbors, with who it has much higher tensions, levels of tensions at least, than with the Iraqis and the, um, the Lebanese. You saw, um, you know, uh, assistance from the Emiratis, which was quite surprising. Uh, the Kuwaitis helped out, the Omanis helped out. Um, even Qatar offered to transport um, medical aid to Iran. So that was an interesting dynamic. I don't think that it's going to lead to much ultimately, but it does show us that these countries are able to collaborate when they have to. On a, on a different note, I, I just wanted to ask Aaron, um, is there a chance that Bashar al-Assad, having survived this much of, of the war, could fall as a result of the economic catastrophe that's unfolding now? I mean, it's nothing is impossible, I think. I think the so far, I think the you know, the destruction of the Syrian economy is I wouldn't say it's worked out to the Syrian regime's advantage, but it certainly hasn't weakened the grip of the Syrian regime because he controls the state, he controls the subsidy mechanisms, he controls, a, you know, the state is a huge economic actor. He, uh, his family or 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 uh, you know cronies in the business landscape have have you know they control the rest of the economy basically, but you do have a situation now where the, you know, the the <laughs> the pie is shrinking and. Uh, this is probably related to the uh, the trouble we're now seeing inside the top echelons of the Syrian elite, where his cousin Rami Makhlouf, who was always you know the the top businessman and throughout the Bashar al-Assad 
era since since the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, he's now in open dissent, basically in open <laughs> sort of a Facebook insurrection against his cousin, the president, and uh, posting videos on his private Facebook account where he says, you know, they're trying to steal my company. They're trying to uh, uh, to, to force me to pay taxes that I shouldn't have to pay. And there's oppression. And there's, a, you know, there's a police state in Syria. He suddenly discovers. Um, and uh, what that's about is is not clear, but it seems like the the regime led by Bashar has decided that they they want uh, Rami Makhlouf to pay more money. Uh, they need the money, so it might be a case of of the regime cannibalizing itself. But it might also be that that Bashar is sort of reconfiguring the 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 inner circle networks, and he wants to shift the power that Rami Makhlouf and the Makhlouf family, which is you know. Bashar's mother's family uh, that they had, and sort of tries to shift that to, to other uh, other loyalists. So we, we, you know, it's 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 all very. Uh, th- there's no transparency. There's no. There's a lot of rumors going on. A lot of dis- disinformation from from all sides. But but there is something happening in 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 a very sensitive area of the Syrian elite, and in ways that we really haven't seen for twenty years, thirty, forty years, even. Uh, you know, there's an interesting parallel uh, with, with Egypt in the sense that, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, there was some reshuffling within the security sector following protests in the in the fall. Um, it remains opaque what all um, the internal struggles were about. We know that they existed, um, and and yet faced with these systemic shocks, um, there has been no course correction in in Egypt. You know, the Sisi regime um, hasn't uh, uh, released many uh, political prisoners. Uh, it continues to arrest new ones. Um, there are, and uh, you know, consistent fears about what uh, outbreaks in, in Egypt's prisons would look like. Uh, you know, these are places of mass overcrowding, um, you know, simply no way um, to protect those populations and, of course, could become a vector for transmission outside. Um, and yet, in the face of all this, uh, the Sisi regime remains outwardly uh, consistent in the way that it uh, treats governance and the way it treats its population. Um, and then again, it comes back to this point you uh, raised earlier, Thanasi, uh, about the the kind of pu- uh, perseverance of uh, of the governance status quo, um, as poor as it is. Um, and of course, I wonder uh, because because this is a kind of shared experience of of kind of region-wide kind of global misery um, uh, that it doesn't have the kind of same um, sense of of specific treatment for any of these populations. I mean, it's something that uh, all of these countries are are undergoing at the same time. Um, You know, and I just psychologically, I wonder what that does to to politics um, and and the sense that that this um, could lead to anything uh, anything new, Michael? I think that's I think that's true for Syria as well. Uh, that even under all this stress, the Syrian regime hasn't really changed its its behavior. It might grow weaker. There might be internal fissures. Or, you know, we we don't know. But there is a there. I I cannot see any sort of shift in in the in the rhetoric or the you know the the focus they they uh, they have on retaking territory from Idlib. There's been no prisoner releases or anything of that sort. 
So, uh, I mean, the, the regime might grow more predatory, it might grow weaker, it might grow more corrupt, it might have trouble controlling territory the way it has in, in the past few years. Uh, there might be internal problems, but there doesn't seem to be um, any, uh, you know, new will to compromise or any new sense of, uh, you know, that this is a new, uh, they should respond to this differently than they have to any other crisis. And the response so far has just been to dig down and fight for to keep whatever they can keep. Yeah, you can almost say the same thing actually for Iran. The 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 government has been under severe stress Um and it has been for a while, actually. It's not just since the outbreak of the of the coronavirus, um, but not much has changed. And and it's not like they've shown that much a will to compromise either. Um, what they have done is that the they've tried to turn this into as much of a win as possible by stoking nationalism, and and by highlighting uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is that ultimately the elite and the people are the same. The disease doesn't know the difference between the two, and it affects everybody. And as such. Um, the country needs to unite in order to fight it. Uh, and they've really been pushing that the the nationalism line um, over the last couple of months and really pushing the that line of unity. Um, and you also see that uh, with with a lot of the 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 placards and stuff that they've put up throughout the country. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know if that's going to work in the long term. It's certainly uh, People are certainly too busy right now to worry about that kind of stuff. But one other thing that the crisis has done is that it's made Iranians even more brutally aware of the um, incompetence of their government. I mean, these were things that the Iranians had seen um, way before the outbreak of the virus. uh, And the most latest uh, iteration of it was the shooting down of the Ukrainian plane in January. Um, But the way that the government handled the outbreak of the virus was just another very, very public um, show of incompetence. And so Iranians are incredibly aware of that right now. And we have to think about the political timeline in the next little while. And and we're going to we're slowly coming up to the elections, the presidential elections next year. And after a largely conservative takeover of parliament in February, it'll be interesting to see um, which direction things go with the elections. And, you know, from a global perspective, incompetence has been rife uh, starting, you know, right here in the United States, uh, which, you know, poses some other interesting questions, you know, one of them being if most uh, of the powerful governments or most of the, you know, a lot of powerful governments have been equally uh, inept, does that end up actually paradoxically reducing uh, the, the cost of, of incompetence uh, politically, um, and I do I do wonder as a uh, as a person with a historian a historian's background whether the potential for transformation as a result of this crisis is going to be on a different timetable than than the one we're used to. Uh, so if there's going to be some kind of uh, major shift in response to these failures, uh, it's not going to be one election uh, that unseats a, a ruling order in Iran or in the United States, uh, but rather a, you know, a decade long shift back to embracing, embracing, let's say, science and, and uh, competence in the delivery of, of public goods like public health. Um, I'm not optimistic, I think is, is clear from from everything I've said, uh, that, 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 that's the likely result. But if, but if there's going to be a good result, um, I expect it's going to unfold really slowly. And I have been surprised by how little 
there has been a, 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 a tangible impact of these shocks from, you know, things like the killing of Soleimani to, to the, uh, you know, inept health response. And I'm not just talking about in Iran, I'm talking about in Washington. Uh, those are crazy moves in the United States that have uh, not yet had a noticeable impact. And, you know, five years from now, either we'll trace uh, our terminal decline to this long period, or, you know, if uh, uh, in the best case scenario, we see some kind of revival of human fortunes, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe say this was, this was the bottom where uh, across the world, people uh, decided to reinvest in uh, a basic uh, competence and, and transparency in the, uh, uh, you know, in things like building their public health systems. Yeah. I mean, just to close, I think, you know, what you hint at is that just the sheer multiplicity of variables. I mean, this is not the status quo, um, uh, in terms of what is going on on a kind of global scale. We have a national political crisis here in the United States. We have, uh, elections in November that, I mean, are going to have you know, a massive impact um, in terms of uh, America's domestic governance, but also America's role in, in the region and the world. Um, and, you know, I think it will be interesting, um, you know, to, to look back on this period because, um, you know, we're, we're very early in this pandemic, potentially. I mean, we, um, you know, judging by reactions uh, in many places, it seems as if uh, we've We've sort of decided that it's over, and um, and obviously it very well might not be. Um, and um, you know, it's hard to to think uh, too far into the future uh, in the face of of all of this instability. Um, and you know, and yet um, you know, we should we should hold out uh, the the possibility that despite this turmoil. Um, you know, we, we aren't going to see uh, far-reaching change. Um, and, and so I think, you know, I think it's good to have perspective that, that this is still uh, quite early in this, um, uh, in, this, in this period. Thank you all for joining us for the podcast. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's International Affairs podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis in New York, and I've been joined today by Dina Esfandiari, Aaron Lund, and Michael Wahid Hanna. Uh, thank you all for so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Anasi. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you enjoy what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. See you next time.